Where do we start with today's guests? She's an IPSE Ambassador of the Year finalist and has been voted one of the top 500 freelancers in the UK. A lot of the work I do with libraries at the moment is, is to kind of get that 21st century perception about libraries out because a lot of people I think still perceive libraries to be those places where we have to be really, really quiet. We're talking about the brilliant Marge Ainsley, whose celebrated work focuses on creating connections. There's these whole like crazy giant projects that I work on from afar and see them come to fruition. That's just really rewarding part of my job. In the podcast, we'll learn how she brings audiences and organisations closer together, helps staff to work more productively and discovers new insight through research and evaluation. Some of them might not even see themselves defined as a visitor attraction. As well as working directly with a range of museums, galleries, libraries and theatres, Marge also helps run the Museum Freelance Network, which gives independents across the cultural sector the opportunity to meet, learn and share ideas. Members of the local community could pitch to come and spend the whole day in the museum by themselves. We did have a few technical difficulties, but nevertheless, you're going to learn plenty from this brilliant interview. So please enjoy. Welcome to Skip the Queue, a podcast that celebrates professionals working in the visitor attraction sector. What do we mean by visitor attractions? Well, it's an umbrella term for a huge range of exciting organisations that are must-sees. Think museums, theme parks, zoos, farms, heritage sites, tour providers, escape rooms, and much, much more. They're tourist hotspots or much-loved local establishments that educate, engage, and excite the general public. Those who work in visitor attractions often pour their heart and soul into providing exceptional experiences for others. In our opinion, they don't get the recognition that they deserve for this. We want to change this. Each episode, we'll share the journeys of inspiring leaders. We'll celebrate their achievements and dig deeper into what really makes their attractions successful, both offline and digitally. Listen and be inspired as industry leaders share their innovative ideas, services and approaches. There's plenty of valuable information you can take away and put into action to create better experiences for your own guests. Your hosts for this podcast are myself, Kelly Molson, and Paul Wright. We're the co-founders of Rubber Cheese, an award-winning digital agency that builds remarkable systems and websites for visitor attractions. Find out how we can create a better experience for you and your guests at rubbercheese.com. Search Skip the Queue on iTunes and Spotify to subscribe. You can find links to every episode and more over on our website, rubbercheese.com forward slash podcast. We hope that you enjoy these interviews. And if there's anyone you think we should be talking to, please do send us a message. Marge Ainsley, it is so lovely to have you on the Skip the podcast this morning. So thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Now, we want to talk a little bit about, well, we want to talk a lot about what you do and how you work within the cultural museum visitor attraction sectors. So can you just tell us a little bit about what you do? So I've been freelance 11 years this year and I tend to work with museums, galleries, theatres, archives, visitor attractions, heritage sites, helping them with their marketing audience development and visitor research or evaluation work. So I suppose if I gave you a sense of an every day or an every week, that could look like me going and working with say an independent museum who don't have in-house expertise in audience development or visitor research and supporting them either strategically or very practically. It could be training them as an organisation as well through to working on large capital projects. So 
I get involved in a lot of new or, or museum refurbishments where there needs to be a lot of upfront visitor research, especially with people who aren't using those places at the moment. So I can be one day working with a collection in a very small independent museum in the middle of nowhere through to a really big, well-funded organisation the next day. So it's a real big mix. And when you talk about kind of communication, evaluation work that you do for them, can you give us an example of how you specifically helped one of those organisations? It could be something as simple as working with an organisation on their copywriting. So, for example, whether that's their interpretation or whether it's um, marketing collateral, where they don't have that kind of copywriting expertise in-house. Or it could be, for example, I worked on Silverstone Experience, which is about to open this year working right before any of the concepts were designed for for that new attraction on non-user research and user research so that could be talking to potential audiences about what they want to see in that attraction and where they go now how they would work out how to get there all that kind of concept testing work so it could be something very very kind of practical with um, an attraction that's already open through to looking at one that isn't open yet and what people want to get out of their experience. So it's a real a real range. What process do you go through to do the research? Usually I work with, and sometimes I work by, by myself, but if it's a big project, I'll work with a team of associates. And so it might be that we work with, say, an exhibition design company who come up with the concepts and we kind of scrutinise those and look at well, who the target audiences are. And then once we've worked out who the target audiences are, we would then go out to those so for example it could be spend a lot of time sitting in ball ponds with families so um, <laughs> I'll, go, I'll go out to particular areas where those target audiences are and and just talk to them so it could be me being in a in a soft play center talk to families for example I mean just parking the larger organizations it could be do a lot of work for libraries so say recently I've been going and talking to families about you know why do or don't they use their local library service? Did they know that there's an arts and cultural offer at their local library service? How do they typically find out about activities in their area? And so that for me is one of the most enjoyable parts of my job, actually going out and talking to people who don't engage with us at the moment and working out what those barriers are. So that practical process is from working out who they are, using data to inform where those people are located, going to those locations, drawing up a discussion guide of relevant questions and then going through that process of interviewing them and analysing the data afterwards and then presenting it back to the client. So, you know, that that could be anything from a, a library organisation, an archive, a, a huge capital project, but it's still pretty much the same process. So I guess you, if you're working with a, an organisation that's kind of already up and running, for example, mm. you would be brought in if they had a challenge with engaging with with people that aren't necessarily coming to their to their museum or their or their visitor attraction already and they want to be able to put an offering together for them so that that might they might bring you in at that point yeah that's right and so um, a lot of the organizations i work for you know they're they're kind of saying well we know we're getting this type of you know visitor coming through the doors how do we either get more of them or how do we get the kind of lapsed people to come back so well, sometimes when i go out and, you know, I'm, I'm talking to different kinds of potential visitors. Some of those, you know, may have gone to a museum or gone to a library as a kid years and years ago or gone but visit once and never gone back again. So it's about 
finding out what their perceptions are, why they've, you know, not been back enough. And, you know, you, you'll come up against perceptions such as, oh, you know, well, it was it was like this when I went as a school child on a school trip 25 years ago and I've never been back since. Or, oh, isn't that the place that they have weddings? Why would I want to go there? Or, you know, they've just got maybe a mismatch in terms of perception or they don't really understand you know, the 2019 version of what that organisation looks like. So, for example, a lot of the work I do with libraries at the moment is is to kind of get that 21st century perception about libraries out, because a lot of people, I think, still perceive libraries to be those places where we have to be really, really quiet, you know, whereas many of them have got a really vibrant cultural offer. So it's it's just about kind of understanding what those barriers are and, and those perceptions and then working out with the libraries and this I suppose is the other part of my job kind of audience development what we call audience development planning working with them to create different kinds of strategies really to engage those people who aren't you know they don't have a level of awareness or have a kind of a, a an incorrect perception I suppose of, of what that place is is like now. That bit must be quite exciting for you as well, because you you get to see a real kind of change in perception. You get to see the progress that that, that organisation can make with the help that you've been able to, to support them with. Yeah, that's right. And I think one of the most interesting bits actually at the moment is around the difference that these organisations are making to people's health and wellbeing. So you've probably seen a lot you know, in the media and out there in terms of, of data around kind of social prescribing and the fact that actually people are now recognizing the value that museums and galleries and other cultural organizations can have on you know our everyday lives and how important they are in terms of contributing to uh, you know the amazing places that we live so when I go and kind of the other side of my work is, is evaluating projects so I don't just do the kind of you know why aren't people visiting I do a lot of evaluation of projects as well and it's really interesting when you talk to people about the difference that these places and projects are making to their lives. So, for example, I was at, I was running a discussion group not so long ago where it was um, a group of people who'd had a real, the real advocates for this particular organisation, and you know they were just talking quite frankly and openly with me about how. You know, they'd never left their house before. They had real anxiety problems. They they might not even get dressed in the daytime. And, and this particular place, um, they'd managed to be persuaded to to go to this cultural activity and cultural provision that was happening and how it just totally turned their life around. And and one gentleman had written on a, on a card um, and left it at the workshop. And it, it said, you know, this particular project had saved his life. And it's, you know, it's, it's those kind of, type of um, research groups that you know you just think oh this is why we do the jobs that we do in the art sector um so yeah it is really interesting and you know it's not it's not always about the the positives either I mean a lot of my work is about looking at you know what's failed and why and I think that's an area I think we're starting to get a little bit better on in terms of evaluation and the cultural sector it's still not quite yet there yet and what I mean by that is when I work with a client, often they're, 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 of course, they're interested in advocacy around their project as well and what's worked really well. Um, but often it's it's been a bit of a battle in terms of getting people to talk openly about what's not worked and, and what we've learned from that. And I think there's a few reasons for that. You know, some of it's around not wanting to, to be seen as failing. Some of it's around 
funders of projects not releasing the end of money until you've submitted an evaluation report. <laughs> so, you know, so there's, there's a lot going on there, but we've seen a, a shift change in that recently. And so a lot of my work is about looking at, okay, well, where where was the you know where were the challenges where were the issues on that and and what what have you learned what are we going to do differently next time and a lot of organizations as well aren't you know they're not just waiting to do evaluation at the end of a project so more and more I'm encouraging people to really kind of use that what we call formative evaluation so really looking across a project period say it's like 18 months really looking right from kind of quarter of the way through halfway through and all the rest of it at what's working well and not and then actually reporting that back in to make a change during a project rather than waiting until the end when it's all kind of done um so so that's that's the other aspect of work I'm really interested in and yeah I've, I've worked with um quite a few really interesting organizations recently who've, who've been really up for that kind of formative evaluation process yeah absolutely I mean that sounds very much like kind of our agile kind of design and development process as well yeah do a absolutely. little bit test it yeah and then then reevaluate. so Marge one of the, the large capital projects that you've worked on recently has been for Silverstone Race Circuit which is a brilliant visitor attraction but could be quite different from the cultural sector that you're used to working with how did you find that project and and, and what did you do for them? I mean, it was so exciting for for me working with kind of a large, you know, commercial organisation. Um, and so, you know, it was it was really interesting in terms of just how the how the organisation works, but also just having the opportunity to conduct visitor research on on a bigger scale. So, for example, for for that project, we again looked at you know who the target audiences were going to be for for the new experience there what the concepts were for for the displays but we ended up working for the whole of the grand prix weekend so this is going going back a couple of seasons now right at the beginning which was great so we had a you know a giant huge marquee at the grand prix now i'm not a massive motorsport fan just to have that experience of you know thousands and thousands of people there so doing surveys we had like a roaming kit box that we took out and about we got items from the collection were displayed in this marquee and we were talking to potential visitors about what those were and what they found exciting what they didn't find exciting they were voting at that point on what the um, attraction might be called what the kind of the themes were and it's just really great to actually be in that space where there was real passionate motorsport fans who were you know just actually really keen to come and talk to us I think we had something crazy like 5,000 people that we interviewed that weekend it was something bonkers but just having the opportunity to be at you know world leading world stage event to do that kind of research and of course you know opening soon I think it's the end of, of October 2019 they're due to open you know just seeing all that research come together because often I work on a project and it might be you know um, an evaluation report for example that I, I do for an organization and then I kind of deliver it and then I move on whereas with this kind of, kind of upfront um, user and non-user research more exploratory research it's really interesting to see how that then gets used by an organization into into a capital project so I'm really looking forward to going down there and seeing seeing what the final result is when it opens but it's, it's the same with whatever I mean I, with the copywriting examples you know I worked on 
Merlin's um, sea life centre, the, the building over in Chongqing. You know, like there's these whole like crazy giant projects that I work on from afar. I didn't have to go to China. I work on all these really interesting, exciting projects and then see them come to fruition. That's just really a rewarding part of my job. But then I also get a lot of satisfaction from working from the with the what I call like you know the the smaller organizations that have big ambitions I mean I work with a lot of independent museums like I say where they're voluntary run you know they don't have they may have like one part-time member of staff but otherwise it's volunteers that run the whole site so for example I'm working with Calderdale Industrial Museum in Halifax you know the Shoreditch of the North I think we're supposed to say now (laughs) um next door to the Peace Hall there and um you know, it's a real ambitious organisation, but they just need that little helping hand with their marketing and comms work. So I've got this privilege of working with those smaller organisations who have these amazing collections and amazing opportunities to engage audiences versus those really giant juggernaut organisations as well. And I guess that's one of the benefits of being a freelancer, isn't it? You know, it's that variety and uh, the different clients that you get to work with. It is, yeah. I think one of the things that we've always thought is is how much museums and the cultural sector can learn from visitor attractions and vice versa. And I guess that's kind of ties in with what you're saying as well, is actually it doesn't matter the, the size or scale of the project that you're working on or the organisation that you're working with. They actually do have exactly the same challenges, just which is why you're able to help them. Yeah, absolutely. And it would be interesting actually to talk to some of these these museum organizations because you know some of them might not even see themselves defined as a visitor attraction i think a lot of the maybe the independent museums who are part of kind of independent museum networks do but i think a lot of organizations i work with just don't kind of categorize themselves as visitor attractions i know that sounds a bit odd but i just don't i don't think they even use the same terminology you know i mean been talking to you guys previously and like kind of the terminology around you know how do we welcome our guests for example you know sometimes visitor attractions talk about guests well that word itself is quite interesting when you talk to museums because I don't think I'm gonna say we here but I don't think we would ever talk about well maybe we would but we don't always talk about museum visitors as guests because it's very much about their place you know their collection museums are wanting to try and give the kind of a welcome to visitors, audiences, users, whatever you would call them, that it's their collection, it's their place to hang out, you know, it's it's of them, it's by them, it's for them. There's this whole campaign and an initiative I should mention really called Of By For All. It's run by um woman called Nina Simon over in the States. And it and it's it's this kind of concept about, you know, if you're wanting to be a real inclusive museum you need to be of the people by the people for the people that kind of thing and so this whole guest you know terminology I think around visitor attractions doesn't almost maybe sit well with that because Mm. we don't want them to be guests we want them to feel like it's theirs I don't know I don't know what you guys think of that but I think there's something interesting there with the terminology between the two that's got to be um difficult if you're writing copy for say websites as well um especially in terms of, say, um, SEO, you know, searching mm. rankings and what you actually say. It's a real minefield, I suppose. Yeah, absolutely. And I think there's a big job to be done around tone of voice, actually. And yeah. and it's something I, I do help museums with um, in terms of their like brand and kind of a copy and tone of voice and their values, because I think 
again, it comes back to some of the challenges that particularly museums face that I work with. I mean, they're doing an amazing job with the resources they have. But if you imagine, you know, an independent museum that is volunteer run, that doesn't necessarily have marketing expertise in-house, and then just layering on that even ability to copyright effectively on a website or, you know, not even thinking about the tone of voice element, just actually thinking about the fact that, you know, when you write for write copy for web, it's different to print. You know, that, that, that's just like not potentially on their radar. So I think that is actually a challenge for a lot of the museums that I work for, just purely because they don't have that capacity and expertise. And, you know, I'm not a digital marketing expert. I don't do a lot of digital work these days, but we do still see that kind of approach by museums of like, you know, say like with social media, we must set up every single channel that we should do with social media because they they just, against that expertise isn't there rather than just thinking, right, let's get our own website in order first and, and get that looking and working effectively on mobile and, and those kind of things. But it, it is purely down to capacity and knowledge and, you know, they have to prioritise, you know, looking after the collections and getting the doors open. And, you know, some of these places I work, you know, they're only opening one or two days a week, potentially, um, and rostering on a whole set of volunteers to be able to open. So it's very different that, you know, you talk about, say, Silverstone, where they'll, you know, they've been recruiting for the new experience and, you know, they'll have a full team. And that versus the kind of the independent museums that I work with, where there's just a couple of them, you know, it's it's really, really tricky. And I'm just dead proud of those ones for just achieving what, what they can and they're doing so much good work. But I guess that's where that's where I come in, isn't it? And supporting them with it. But yeah, tone of tone of voice and the way that museums are selling themselves, I think. And the USPs as well. So I do do a lot of work with museums where, you know, they might have five or six different sites all under the same banner I spend a lot of time working out with them well what is it, is it everything for everyone you know who's the target audience for all of these different sites is the messaging different you know what are you what are the features versus the benefits of those individual sites but yeah I'm not I'm not sure that they would be referring to people as guests anyway how often do you review their their copy well, it depends what the project is. I mean, I'm working with a group of museums in Cheshire at the moment. And, you know, we did a kind of a print audit the other day looking at, you know, well, what's there? What's on brochure like, for example, you know, and we pull apart other people's brochures and we look at theirs and we think about target audiences and we look at the kind of the copy and the imagery and what they're wanting to say. But that's part of a whole programme I'm working with them on audience development. So it, it depends on the project. If it's, say, like a, a training session, I'll, I'll tend to run that, say, I'll do training on copywriting brand and tone of voice. That's kind of separate. But with audience development, that's just such a broad piece of work. So, for example, I might get involved in writing audience development strategy and people often get marketing on audience development confused or they might like think very differently about the two. And it all comes down to semantics. I mean, most people, like if you were to ask them, would say, you know, well, marketing is the kind of the numbers, it's the bums on seats, it's the getting people through the door as the audience development is not just more visitors, but diversifying those visitors as well, diversifying those audiences. So when 
when we sit down doing an audience development strategy, we really involve everybody from across the organisation because it could be, you know, programming, it could be collections, it could be the welcome, it could be the comms, it could be anything in terms of the interpretation, this whole range, all those different kinds of things that we can do to, to diversify the audiences. It could be internal as well, so making sure the staff are trained. So when I'm doing audience development strategic planning, the copywriting and the kind of the messaging just forms one part of that. Kind of piece of work which takes place over kind of quite a long period of time and then ultimately it's either some kind of audience development manual or practical guide definitely not a 80-page strategy that sits on the shelf it needs to be something proactive that, that organization uses and um, so it, it's a real small small part whereas if i was working say on copywriting for sea life center Chongqing, their entire seahorse gallery for example you know that's me just focused on that piece of work and it's just purely to do with copywriting or copy editing so I mean this I'm kind of hopscotching around a little bit but that's just reflecting my portfolio I suppose and the different types of, of work that I do so you've been freelancing for 10 10 years now 11 yeah 11 11 years <laughs> don't, don't forget that one <laughs> 11 years of freelancing so we know we know ourselves from running a busy agency how complex it can be how many balls you're juggling at, at any number at any time but one of the amazing things that you do is you actually set up the museum freelance network can you tell us how did that how did that even come about because <laughs> it sounds like you're busy enough yeah, I've got quite a few side projects, but then you ask any freelancer and they've got a list of side projects as long as there are. But I didn't actually set it up. So um, it was um, Christina Lister and Laura Crossley set it up about oh. four, four years ago. And then I came on board quite quite soon after they, they started it to give them a, a helping hand, really. And, and ultimately, in a nutshell, the network was really set up to kind of champion and support and lobby for freelancers working within the cultural sector so we specifically focus on freelancers working in museums libraries archives galleries um, and heritage sites and so gosh the community's grown substantially in those those four years really we have um, an annual conference where we have around 80 to 90 delegates coming along to that we run a training workshop every three months for people who are new to freelancing or thinking about freelancing and that's just you know we've been amazed how popular that is I suppose one of the things we do with museum freelance we're we're collaboration rather than competition so it's not about you know well I've done that why would I say to that person how I've done it it's about it's about supporting each other and so um, when you come to conference or if you come to a training workshop or indeed you know if you're on the community so we have like um, a LinkedIn group which has got about it's 800 uh, we've got on there now we have like regular q a's on twitter and on social media as well if you get involved you'll you'll notice that we're very much about you know thinking like a business so it's not even though it's specifically focused on freelancers within the cultural sector it's very much about you know those broad business skills that everybody needs as a freelancer so at the conference whether you're a you know someone who's a visitor services expert or visitor experiences expert or whether you're a you know an archivist or whether you're a a painting restorer or a marketing freelancer it doesn't matter it's all kind of I don't want to use the word generic that's not quite right but it's broad so we'll have talks about coaching and um, health and well-being we'll have talks about finance we'll have talks about um, staying motivated as a freelancer so it's 
it's really it's really broad and we we set it up and, and have continued it because we just felt that that was missing in terms of specifically the the cultural sector and so we're there not to just support freelancers but kind of do that lobbying behind the scenes as well that wasn't happening and, and what I mean by that is you know making sure that we have a, a seat around the table when it comes to new strategies and new policies being developed by organisations such as you know the Museums Association or the Association for Independent Museums you know these kind of larger membership organisations Arts Council England have got a consultation out at the moment on their next five-year strategy so how do we make sure that freelancers are you know part of that that discussion one of the things that we're doing at the moment is you know we recognize that there isn't a lot of robust data and and research out there about specifically museums and, and galleries and you know those kind of cultural organizations freelancers you know there's there's plenty there in terms of say creative industries around you know what does that like freelance landscape look like who are they where do they live what kinds of people are they what are they charging what are they working on but nothing really similar exists in in the cultural sector so we're at the moment working on kind of a mapping survey that we're going to be sending out which will hopefully give us that data we need that shows us kind of not just what the demographics are, are like and what people are charging but also gives us the opportunity to look at what what the challenges are that are facing freelancers within our our sector and then to be able to use that data to be a bit more informed in terms of that lobbying or informed in terms of that our own evaluation so for example with our conference at the moment we don't know if the people coming to conference are representative of the museum freelance sector at large so hopefully having a mapping survey that tells us more about those things will be useful for, for us as well as for other organizations working with freelancers in the sector when is the data from this survey when is it going to be released so we're hoping to put the survey out in the new year uh, we're working on it at the moment so yeah watch this space uh, i should say <laughs> And Christina will be like listening to this, I'm sure she she will say, don't forget, it's just us. We are volunteer run. We're not a membership organisation. So everything that we do with Museum Freelance, whether it's the conference, the kind of the community side of things that we do, you know, it's it's just me and one other person at the moment. So we're tied (laughs) to to the time we have outside of our client work as to how much that we take on. But, you know, we're both really passionate, really, about just kind of keeping it keeping it going and keeping supporting the freelancers that are out there because yes there are the wider networks like being freelance and freelance heroes and doing it for the kids and all of those that are there to support freelancers working across sectors but there isn't really anyone there to to fight the corner of of cultural freelancers and so things like you know that everyone else is picking up on fair payment for freelancers and being paid on time and and things like that but also looking at how organisations within the cultural sector can work more effectively with freelancers as well. So this isn't us, and we very much position ourselves like this, you know, this isn't us having a moan about freelancing at all. We do a lot of celebrating about freelancing, but it's also about, it's mutual, it's reciprocal. So we do a lot of work with organisations within the cultural sector, supporting them in terms of how to write a decent freelance brief, um, understanding 
you know fees and what to charge like what the budget should be and so like Christina this week she's off to the Museum Association conference talking to museums there about you know how to work best with freelancers so it's not just us supporting the freelancers we also work with organizations as well on you know what what they can do to help and how that can make their lives easier and um, their work um, more effective too. This is something that we've talked about at great length independently of this podcast, Marge, isn't it? We talked, we, when we met up in London a few months ago, we discussed the tendering process, particularly around cultural organisations and how that could potentially be improved. So it's lovely to hear that you are actually actively involved in working with those organisations to be able to make positive change in that, in that area. Yeah, and I think, you know, we have to kind of recognise that, you know, some organisations, especially, again, the the kind of smaller or independent ones that I I would work with, you know, they haven't got lots of experience in working with freelancers. They might not have written a brief before. So it is about helping them and also thinking about stuff as a freelancer that makes sense to you around, well, I need two weeks to put a proposal together or I should be interviewed on Skype. Do I need to be interviewed? You know, what's the process between when the brief goes out to when I'm supposed to be starting the contract? That's normal to us. We know what our timescales are, but an organisation who isn't used to working with freelancers might not have the same understanding of that. And similarly, just like the language as well. So one thing that we are doing quite a lot of championing of at the moment is making sure that organisations know when something is a freelance role versus when it should be a paid full-time or part-time PAYE member of staff. So you'll see a lot of language and around jobs or job specification or, you know, you might see a brief that has a full long list of, you know, you must be here at this time and you must do this work, which will all fall foul of HMRCs. You know, this is not a freelance job. It should be a, an actual paid position. And that's not them necessarily being on purpose trying to get away with a freelance contract when it should be in-house where they would pay for NI and all the rest of it it's just like I would say 99.9% of the cases we see it's just naivety on behalf of the organisation just not understanding the difference between the two and the rules that exist around there in terms of HMRC and you know, I won't go into those but um, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I think I think it is I think it's just really I think the organisations that we've supported with it and you know when we've done talks at conferences about it the museums like are are welcoming that support because again it's just not been there really but there is only so much that we can do and we've got you know so many many ambitions for them for the network and yeah watch this space we absolutely will Marge. (laughs) i'd like to talk a little bit about surveys we've had a bit of experience lately trying to put one together and i thought it was going to be quite easy to do but actually, it was really, really, really difficult. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm a qual rather than a quant girl, I have to say. Um, give, me a, give me a discussion guide and a consultation group any day rather than yeah. a survey. But you will, you know, I find that within some of the work I do, it needs a mixed methodology. So, you know, I do, I do put together surveys and I do train people as well in terms of evaluation research method so I have like um, a whole session in the afternoon about what makes a good and a bad survey and that's quite an eye-opening part of the session but I guess for me when I see a really awful survey there's there's a few things it's 
typically if you know if someone doesn't actually have a really good grasp on what their research objectives are in the first place what it is they're trying to find out and i always say to people you know measure what matters you know why are you asking that question and i'll, I'll go through like a survey audit with people if they've already gotten like so what are you actually doing with the results from that question and they go oh i don't know it's just been like that since 2008 i'm like right okay so it's about actually putting together that you know what is it we want to find out you know what are the research or evaluation objectives from the offset and designing the questions effectively from that so there's there's a little bit there in terms of sometimes people will just kind of stick their finger in the air and go oh we'll ask this for no reason i also see you know just some horrendous surveys in terms of questions so there might be double questions or there might be um, questions that don't make any sense they're in the wrong order the survey is too long and you give up especially if it's on mobile these days you know people will design a survey and some free software and then bash it out and it's all you know you've got to do endless scrolling or they put pictures in that never load up because they're too big there's a lot to think about really in terms of you know, the overall look as well as the questions and how it works across different platforms. So that would be another thing I would say, you know, think about where people are filling that survey and think about how long they've got. We'll see, you know, random introductions as well to surveys or no introductions at all. So, you know, you must kind of tell people what the point of the survey is. You know, are you going to incentivise it? If you are going to incentivise it, then you need to, you know, be looking at, kind of the market research society's code of conduct around incentives and how that works you know, are you collecting data from the surveys as well are you within gdpr there's so many things to think about and i think that's why often you'll get external or independent evaluators or research people to give you a hand because it you know people will say to me oh you know why are you charging me like this amount of time to put a survey together and that they're you know they're really surprised about how long it takes to design a decent survey and I, and I suppose just as a final point on that because I could go on all day about surveys is, is to test it the amount of time I said to people oh, so did you you know try this out before you know sending it to you know, a mailing list of 50,000 people like, oh, no, we've not done that. It's the best thing that you can do. You know, I've been writing surveys a long time and I still make mistakes in there in terms of maybe the wording isn't right or a question isn't phrased properly or it's maybe the order isn't quite right or the routing doesn't work. So the best thing that you can do is test it, whether that's on a colleague or whether a member of the, the target audience you're, you're aiming for, just to, to give it a bit of a sense check because without without fail the beat there will be something there will be something with it thanks for that i wish we'd talked to you before <laughs> i have to say we did get we did ask the experts in the end we got a great guy in to help us <laughs> i might be able to guess who that is yeah. <laughs> it definitely took us a lot longer than we expected it was one of those things where we started it and then it was only only we got really deep into it you just realized i don't we really need some help with this. Yeah, I think that's the thing as well. And when I when I go and do the training, a lot of the projects that I work on, I will always build in some element of training because, and it might be doing myself out of future work, but for the kinds of organisations I work with, you know, they are being restructured, they are having their budgets cut left, right and centre. And, you know, they're not going to be able to afford to buy in a freelancer or an independent or a consultant all the time. And so just having that training where they can embed those skills and leave, if I can leave them with something sustainable, then that to me is 
that's great that's what I want so a lot of the time that training we we pull those surveys apart but I also give them the kind of the skills in terms of how to write it what pitfalls to look out for but also how to analyze it as well and how to write it up because I think the other thing with it is we're awash with data aren't we we're awash with giant 100 page reports and big data and all this data around us but it's really hard to cut through that and so a lot of the time I'm kind of teaching organizations about how to not just analyze their data but how to you know present it and how to tell the story as well so we're coming up towards the end of the podcast march but there's a few extra questions that we want to run by you one of the things that you talk about is about being really interested in creating connections Mm. what we wanted to ask you is from your understanding and research what do you think that people really want from organizations in the cultural sector and and when we say people we mean visitors I think it depends who the target audience is doesn't it I mean you know I do a lot of work with families who are you know they are simply looking for a, a wet weather afternoon activity that is free but it doesn't really matter what visitor you know which visitor you talk to they're wanting that you know that welcoming space they're wanting somewhere where you know they can learn somewhere that they can take time out somewhere where they can be entertained we talk a lot about motivation within arts and culture and I think we can probably do a lot better in terms of tapping into those motivations as well. I mean, I'll give you an ex- ex- a really good example recently. You might have seen it in the media. So the Harris Museum in Preston, they have partnered up with their local NHS trust. So it's like an NHS foundation trust. And that particular branch of it is called the um, Lancashire Recovery College. And every Monday now, they've partnered with them to basically work out of the museum. So on a Monday, you know, you can go and do all these different types of health and well-being activities, for example. You know, I think I think people, I don't know if they know this or whether that it's just us putting this on them, but I think some people are wanting this. It's just that space that is within their community. So, you know, before I was talking about the of, by, for, all, just changing the perception of museums not being stuffy, not being unwelcoming places, places that are for the likes of them. And I think one of the, the side of those that is is this sense of community, you know, whether you're going there for a social experience, having a cup of tea, whether you're going to do yoga or whether you're going to do a kind of an art and therapy event like this Monday at the Harris, you know, Manchester Art Gallery, I'm, I'm talking to you from Manchester here, they have a, a kind of a, an and breathe space where, you know, you can go and just sit and contemplate the work, you know, th- those kind of safe spaces where you can just take a breather from busy lifestyle. So I think people are wanting different things depending on which target audiences they are. They are. But I think more and more we are and I think should be looking at museums, and I'm conscious I've talked a lot about museums, but museums as, you know, spaces that the community feels are for them. I don't know whether that's answered your question. But... No, no, it does. And it's a really interesting discussion because I, I saw something actually on Twitter a couple of days ago, and I, I will find who, who tweeted this, and I will credit them in, in the show notes, but, but they talked a lot about, museums and cultural spaces opening themselves up as co-working spaces and I thought what a brilliant idea yeah I was in on that conversation actually because oh, right. um, I, I linked into Battersea because Battersea Arts Centre have opened up a co-working space in fact they were presenting at the Ipsy National Freelancers Day this this last year um, about their work and so yeah I think 
it comes down to the museum's purpose ultimately doesn't it and what they believe that they stand for I'm not suggesting that every single museum and gallery is going to want to be everything to everybody or behave in a particular way and become a a community centre but from my perspective with certainly with audience development and with getting people to engage with our collections and engage with us as as organisations we've got to be more open we've got to be more responsive to to what those audiences are looking for and what their needs are break down these barriers around you know not for the likes of me you know we, we talk in the cultural sector a lot about you know audiences are hard to reach and I kind of stamp my foot a bit about that because I don't think they're hard to reach I think we're the ones that are hard to reach you know so I think there's so many good projects and organizations out there doing amazing things in terms of audience development but I think you know we've still got a way to go in terms of just changing that perception around what what a museum could and can be when you go to somewhere like the Whitworth here in Manchester and they've got a beautiful park outside where they combine you know a visit to the park and poetry in the park with what's happening inside the museum and linking the two you go to other places and there's amazing events and workshops going on with to help the local community members who've got English as a second language and they they use the paintings and the collection to support that language development you know that there's so many good projects but it is something I know that's kind of a real hot topic in the sector at the moment about that sense of, of community and there's a brilliant if you if you want a good example of this if you look up Philbrook Museum in, in Oklahoma there's a guy, the the director there spoke at, and there's a big museum conference called Museum Next, um, and he spoke at the conference about how they totally revolutionised this historic house in the middle of quite what is a quite deprived area in in uh, Tulsa, in Oklahoma, and um, you know just little changes that they've made to make the community feel like it's a place for them rather than a place that isn't and it's for people who are rich and have loads of money to go and visit you know for little things like they have um when when the director started they weren't allowed food in the gardens it's got these beautiful gardens around it so he just turned that on its head and started doing barbecue burger fridays and they have hundreds of the local community go now they're closed on mondays but then they put this kind of me time Monday into to place where members of the local community could kind of pitch to come and spend the whole day in the museum by themselves like whilst the staff were there the whole museum shut and they just can blog and they can draw and they can do what they want they've changed little things like the retail office so rather than selling stuff that no one wants they sell like paracetamol and nappies and like just like really little changes but it's like revolutionized the way the community perceive that museum and, and it has made them feel like you know they're welcome there I think that's that's really what we need to do more of um, in the sector and that's that's why I love working kind of a, with audience development and audience development strategy because it's not necessarily the typical things that you would have on um, you know marketing communications plan it, it's not let's change the leaflet or let's there's a bit of that. There's a bit of well, is the leaflet going to the right place? What we're we doing with our website, but there's a lot more in terms of audience development, like you know, going out to people, bringing the collection, and taking that out to people, working with particular community partners to access different groups. So there's a lot more to audience development than just are we do, distributing our leaflets in the right places. 
<laughs> and it kind of comes full circle to what we talked about earlier about creating connections. It's, it's, it is really about creating connections between those people and that organisation and that venue and how they can use it to support them as part of, a part of their own personal development, which is just lovely. Yeah, it's exactly that. I mean, within a work context, you know, for me, it could mean getting organisations to work better with the partners or facilitating meetings internally to get teams working more effectively. So another side of my work, which we've not touched upon, it is a facilitation. So I will get asked to go and help away days or meetings um, so that they can kind of just take a step back from actually running them themselves. So that connections could be just getting organisations to work better together as well get better communication between the staff or it could be like we've talked about those connections in terms of getting museums to understand their non-user audiences a bit better by you know going and doing that research or getting them to do the research now I'm working with some organizations at the moment where I've kind of given them some homework to go out um, to particular marketplaces and and actually stand and talk to people and you'll find quite a few museums do this now um, it's kind of like back to the shop floor because a lot of office staff don't, you know, they don't have that opportunity to actually go and talk to visitors. So people will roster, you know, whatever level of the organisation you're on, you go and do a visitor services job for an hour every so often, you know, just because then you really do get a sense of what people are talking about, what they're struggling with in the museum and, and just have that connection with them. So I've always had this thing really around whether it's like my personal or professional life about creating connections and I suppose that's why I really enjoy what I do too. Marge, thank you. We have absolutely loved speaking to you today. We're going to write up all the show notes, everything that you've discussed, all of the things that you've mentioned, we'll link to, so we'll give everyone shout-outs too. But thank you for your time. We've had a great time. You're very welcome. Thank you. You can find links and notes from this episode and more over on our website, rubbercheese.com forward slash podcast, or search Skip the Queue on iTunes and Spotify to subscribe. Please remember to leave a rating. It helps other people find us. This podcast was brought to you by Rubber Cheese, an award-winning digital agency that builds remarkable systems and websites for visitor attractions. Find out how we can create a better experience for you and your guests at rubbercheese.com.